Why do you think the opioid epidemic has taken hold um, so dramatically in West Virginia, parts of Ohio, in this region? Well, I think that it's largely because these areas used to be incredibly hopeful and optimistic about the future, but in some ways they've seen the rug really pulled from under them in the past 20 or 30 years. And so if you compare it to areas that are similarly hard hit by poverty or by low upper mobility, it's not so much um, that they're worse off. I think it's that they, they have gone from 10 to zero in a very short amount of time. They've seen what used to be a relatively promising, stable, working or middle class opportunity completely disappear. And because of that, I think folks are pretty despairing about the future. And when that happens, I think it's not that surprising that some of these drugs start to move in. And how do you turn that around? Well, I, I think the answer has to start with our education system, actually. So appropriate that I'm talking to Education Week. Um, but I, I think it has to start with education because so many of these jobs that have disappeared from these areas just aren't coming back. They haven't disappeared so much from globalization or from shipping them overseas. They've largely disappeared because of automation and because of new technological change. Mm -hmm. And the only way to really address that crisis is to actually train people for the next generation of high quality jobs. And I think right now, a lot of folks feel that when they graduate from high school, they're effectively given an option between go work in a service sector job making seven or eight dollars an hour or go to a four year degree. And there's really no, no, there's nothing in between. There are no options in between. And consequently, a lot of folks don't see much opportunity. So are there even options in between? Do kids in this region need to be encouraged and help to get into college? Is that the answer? Well, I think that's part of the answer, but a lot of kids don't want to go to college. And I think that it's really an indictment on our society that the only way, the only bridge to the middle class is through a traditional four-year college degree. And so there has been some recognition that we really need to spend more and think more about vocational education, two-year technical colleges and so forth. But I don't think we've done enough as a country to make those options not just part of the conversation, but really part of the mindset of some of these kids when they're thinking about what to do next. How do you think school hurt you and helped you as you were going through, you know, your childhood? How, how, how was it an influence for better or for worse? Well, um, I would say that it was just almost a uniformly positive influence on me. You know, I had a couple of really good teachers, I think, who recognized maybe that I didn't totally know what was going on, but took me under their wing and offered me some extra help. And because of that, I think I, I, I was I was given access to opportunities that unfortunately a lot of kids aren't. So I think what was great about the educational experience that I had is that you know there were just a lot of people who sort of recognized that there were things that I needed help with, and they were willing to offer that help. Um, you know, there there was a sense if if I'm you know going to pick a negative, I don't think that this is the school's fault, but I do think there was a sense when I was in school, elementary and middle school especially, where we didn't really know what options were out there in terms of you know what were we going to do as a job after high school. A lot of us just assumed, well, maybe we'll go to college, but we'll probably just go and work in the steel mill. And I think that mindset of not really thinking strategically about our options isn't necessarily the fault of the schools, but is something that schools can help with. Do you, um, do you think that's why charter schools have become so popular? A lot of people feel that they do put that emphasis on from the very beginning. Uh, absolutely. I think that's one thing charter schools have done pretty well, or at least some schools have done some, excuse me, 
I think that's something some charter, charter schools have done especially well. It's something I think that needs to happen more, and I'm glad that some charters are recognizing that it's a really important part of the educational path moving forward. For those two people in America who haven't read your book, <laughs> um, can you t try to explain to people what your childhood was like? How would you describe your childhood? Yeah, so my childhood was, on the one hand, pretty chaotic and unstable. We moved around a lot. There was some domestic violence in the home, uh, but it was also very loving. It was this place where I had probably a dozen relatives, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, who were constantly coming in and out and playing a really positive role in my life. And I think that that side of it, that really positive side, is ultimately what saved me from the chaos and the instability, which was the downside of how I grew up. You saw, um, obviously, a parent who wrestled with drug abuse. Um, yeah. How? What would you say to kids who are in a similar circumstance right now? Because there are a lot of them, obviously, and, and you lived through it. Well, I would say, first of all, um, it, it, it gets better in one way or another. It definitely does. Um, the, the, the hard thing about this, of course, is that you know, part of the reason it got better for me is because I had my grandma, who I write about quite a bit in the book, and I, I know that some kids don't have access to that person. So, you know, I, I don't want to give a pessimistic image uh, or pessimistic message to those kids, uh, but I do think that one of the things that these kids who are trapped in these addicted households need is at least one really stable adult that they can depend on. And so, whether it's a grandparent, whether it's an aunt or an uncle, I really would encourage kids to the degree that they're able to go and find that person. But of course, I recognize that that's not always easy, especially when you're just a little kid trapped in one of these homes. Um, but, you know, I, I think the most important message I would give to these kids is don't give up on yourself. It's very easy to think that the world that you're living in is the only world that's out there and to sort of become very hopeless because of it. But if my life is any proof, and certainly if many other people's lives are any proof, uh, there is another world out there. And though it's certainly going to be harder for the kid who comes from an addicted household, there are still options out there to make something and to frankly build the home that you weren't given. And that's really what I wanted to do as a kid. And I think it's possible. I noticed in your book, I think it was, or maybe, uh, I don't know, I've looked at your book and looked at the TED Talks. So I'm not sure exactly, but you, you sure. talked about the fact that um, that education wasn't valued that much, that parents didn't do the homework, they didn't care if the kids did the homework. I mean, what is the view of education and, and how big an, of a problem is that? Well, it obviously differs from household to household. And, um, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways, I mean, you know, my, especially for my grandparents, I benefited from a real emphasis on education and they really cared about it and respected it. Um, I would say the biggest disadvantage that these kids have in the face of education is not necessarily that their families don't value it, but that oftentimes their homes are so unstable and so chaotic that it's hard to focus on your schoolwork. It's hard to actually worry about school when you're so worried about how you're going to survive at home. And so I think that is one of the real lessons that I hope that people take from the book is that it's certainly important to focus on how we can reform our schools and make them better. But if we don't recognize the real disadvantages that start when these kids are at home, then I don't think we're ever going to really address this problem. What can the schools do? Uh, what do you see the school's role being? Yeah, that, that, that's, uh, I think, a really tough one. Um, I, I, I think one is just to try to understand what's going on in the lives of some of these kids. You know, 
it's unfair that we sometimes force schools, force teachers to become effectively social workers. But I do think that it's important to try to really understand that maybe the reason this kid is acting out is not because he's a bad kid or because he doesn't like school, but because he woke up at four in the morning worrying about how he's going to feed his brothers and sisters. And so that oftentimes I think gets left behind. We tend to think of home and school as two very separate worlds. And I think to the degree that educators really focus on the, the fact that home informs school and vice versa, um, I think they, they would do a lot for their kids who come from circumstances similar to mine. Do you have any advice for um, the Trump administration on education as it comes in, or, or Betsy DeVos if she's confirmed as the education secretary? Um, yeah, I, I think one the only piece of advice I'll offer is to recognize that so many of the next generation of jobs require training and skills that we're not necessarily preparing our kids for right now. And to the degree we can focus not on how we can bring jobs back from China, but how we can prepare people for the 21st century knowledge economy, I think that's a very important part of actually solving these very significant regional economic crises that we have in places like West Virginia or Ohio. So my advice is focus on post-secondary education and how we can give kids more pathways to the middle class. Whether it's job training or technical training or whatever, right? You're saying there might exactly. be a lot of different options. Yeah, absolutely. We need, we need to change, I think, not just from a policy perspective in the way that we fund and focus on technical and vocational education, but we really need to change the cultural mindset about these things. You know, mm -hmm. folks don't respect those who have a two-year college degree or don't have a college degree at all. We maybe don't place as much cultural capital in a plumber as we do as a four-year liberal arts graduate, but both of those people can do honorable things, and both of those people are very valuable. And I wish that, you know, you know, so, so not, is another way of saying that we shouldn't just focus on technical and vocational education as policy. We should also focus on them as valuable and valued parts of the education option. And if we do that, I think we might actually, might actually change people's approaches to those options. Do you see any similarity between sort of the urban poor urban districts and what's going on in rural districts in America? Well, there are definitely similarities. I mean, if you look at the data, the, for example, the home chaos and instability problem is just as much a problem in the inner cities as it is in, in some of these poor rural communities. The one difference, obviously, is that in inner cities, urban areas, you have much more densely populated school districts. And so there are in some ways more options to experiment, to try out charter schools and so forth, just because you have more kids who are being served. So I do think that the rural side of this is a little bit different. And while we recognize the similarities, I think we have to keep in mind some of these differences that come from just having a less densely populated school district. Yeah. Do you think charter schools are even really an option in the rural areas or some kind of school choice? Well, I think that they're definitely an option. I just think that they have to be crafted for those particular areas. I mean, in some ways, the school choice movement, the excuse me, the school choice movement, the charter school movement are very important, but they are very often designing solutions that assume a certain density of population. I don't think that it's impossible to take those solutions to rural areas, but they're obviously going to have to be a little bit different when you're not dealing with as many people. Right. Um, you have seen the situation sort of from both sides, from the 
from the elite side, as you call it, and from um, you know the poor side, I guess. What should we know about someone who's kind of seen both those things? Well, my my view is that it's actually a little unfortunate how different these two worlds are, and not just in terms of their access to money and how they spend and where they live and so forth, but just in some of the cultural mindset these different groups have. As I wrote in the book, when you go from lower class to so-called elite, people tend to think that almost everything, every attitude, every habit that you acquired was either unhealthy or at least out of fashion. And I think that we, we've really got to try to bridge the cultural divide between elite and lower income because a lot of kids like me just don't feel especially comfortable when they go to a place like Yale and find out that everything that they learned growing up is either unfashionable or unhealthy in the minds of their new peers. And so I, I, I just I do think that there's a real cultural gulf between these two groups of people where they don't necessarily really understand one another. And I think consequently, they start to develop caricatures of one another and a little bit of frustration towards one another. How do you bridge um, that? How do you how do you bridge that gap? Well, I think that the only, unfortunately, it's not an easy answer, but the only answer is that these two groups have to spend more time with each other. And when we look at it from a policy perspective, we're living in a very unique time of residential segregation when it comes to both race and class. And I think that unless we start to change that, unless we start to become a country where there aren't just purely rich neighborhoods and purely poor neighborhoods, it's always going to be very hard to bridge that gap. So I, I really think that we have to think about how, how, how do we get people who are of different classes and different races spending more time with one another. It's not an easy thing to solve for, but I think it's one of the few things that would really help. Right. You also mentioned that, I believe it was in your TED Talk, that it's not only the kids who need to be educated, but their parents to help this group move forward sure. um, in society. Talk about that. What education is important for for the head of households in these in these homes? Well, I, I think just some recognition, first of all, that the way that you interact with your kids starting when they're infants is incredibly powerful and can affect their prospects for the rest of their lives. Um, there's some really good research that suggests that, you know, lower income families oftentimes don't even know that, for example, raising your voice frequently can mess with the brain chemistry of your kid, that it can create certain psychological problems down the road. Um, they don't know that reading to your kids very often can produce really positive outcomes later on in life. So I think in some ways the education gap that needs to be bridged is just to inform some of these parents in some ways how to better interact with their, with their kids. Um, and, you know, frankly, these families are very open to that. They, they, it's not that they don't love their kids. It's just that some of the things that they grew up, um, some of the things that they grew up with, they don't necessarily realize if you keep on doing that, it's not going to produce the best outcome for your children. How do you bridge, you know, if you're trying to bridge these communities, is it just what you said, people coming together and really getting to know each other? Yeah, there's always going to be a problem with cultural tourism, I think. And it, you know, the way that I think about this is if you're, if you're going to one of these areas for an hour and you're talking to people for an hour um, and your purpose is just to tell a story 
or just to maybe make yourself feel a little bit better that you know some poor people, then that strikes me as cultural tourism. But if you're really invested in these communities, if you really care about some of the problems that they have, the ways that you might help, then you won't just go by once. I think you'll come back. You'll maybe think about how you can live closer to certain areas. And I think that's the real difference between cultural tourism and real cultural engagement with people who are different from you. So you talked a lot about secondary education, and you've also talked about the fact, even at earlier grades, that um, kids need to be taught that, you know, sort of given a sense of what's possible. Sure. Um, let me even go younger, pre-K. How early should should these kids get into school, and should that be some, something the government takes on? I mean, what is your view about that? Yeah, that's a really tough question. I mean, you know, generally speaking, um, I, so I, I, I don't necessarily want to pontificate on, on sort of government-funded pre-K. Okay. Just because okay. I, I just and, – and the, and the answer the, – the reason is because I've seen evidence that it's actually very effective, but I've also seen evidence that it's not especially effective. And so my worry, at least with universal pre-K, is I think that we really have to figure out what works and what doesn't before we try to scale it to a national audience because if we try to scale it now – my worry is that if it doesn't work especially well, you're going to lose the political capital that you had to actually bring large-scale pre-K to a lot of these kids. So the, the way that I think about pre-K is that it absolutely is important and effective. It's important not just for the kids, but also because it actually provides space for parents to go to work. Um, to you know, to to, to it, it sort of is in some ways an indirect subsidy for childcare. Mm. That's very important. But it has to – we have to do it in a way that works. And I think that there are some good models out there, but there are also some, clearly some models that haven't produced especially long-term results. So we have to be, I think, careful about taking this too big too quickly. So I've read that you're thinking about moving back to Ohio. Can you talk about that and what you – why what – what is your thought there and what would you do if you went back to Ohio? Yeah, well, so definitely moving back to Ohio, and it's related to the thing that we talked about uh, just a couple of minutes ago, that I think, you know, those of us who have been given certain opportunities in life owe it to the communities that we came from, really the communities uh, that gave us those opportunities to not just, you know, live in our little enclaves and forget about them, but to actually try to play a positive role in the communities we care about. Um, So I am going to go back to Ohio. What I'm going to do is still very much up in the air in terms of uh, employment and so forth. Um, but one of the things that I do want to do is we're going to start a small nonprofit to focus on this opioid crisis, which has been really, really bad in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we're going to get some good ideas about how we may actually bring those overdose death rates down. When you look back on your life, your short life so far, um, sure. but quite an extraordinary one, what do you think? What do you think when you look back? <laughs> Uh, I think it's pretty crazy. Uh, I certainly didn't expect to have any of these things happening that I've, I've had right now, especially, you know, when I was a 14 or 15 year old kid. Um, but the, I, I think because of it, I just feel like this very overwhelming sense of gratitude. Like I think of Mamaw, who didn't graduate from high school, who basically had no real opportunities in her life and think now I'm, you know, I have this best selling book and I have a great family and everything seems to be working out for me. And I just feel incredibly thankful that there were people like her who stepped in and made sure that I didn't slip through the cracks. That's like, that. that's what I feel. Like when I think about my life, I just feel really grateful, especially for Mamaw and Papaw, but for a few other people too. 
And why do you think you ended up at Yale? Why, wh I, um, I know you've talked about it in the book, and I, I thought one thing was so interesting that you mentioned that a lot of kids in your circumstance don't realize that it might be actually more affordable to go to one of the elite institutions than to go to a state school or, or something like that. So um, how do you, what would you say to folks about that, and how do you think you actually ended up there? Well, um, I, I think you know, th this definitely goes back to Mamo and Papal. The reason I think that I was able to do some of these things, they, they really made sure that some of the worst things that were going on at home didn't have long-term effects for me. They really made sure that they stepped in and that I was given the stability, I think, that is a necessary building block to having some of the opportunities that I've had in my own life. Um, you know, I, I, you know, the, the it's, it's sort of impossible to try to recreate this stuff, I think, in, in hindsight. You know, the, serving four years in the Marine Corps, seeing that there were other opportunities out there, seeing that I could do certain things. And the Marine Corps, I think, was very good at building a certain willfulness in me, at, at giving me the self-confidence to keep on going, setting higher goals and, and going after them. I've benefited a tremendous amount, obviously, from Ohio State and from some of the educational chances that I had there. So... I, I think that the way that I got here, frankly, is that 20 small things had to fall in place for me right at the right at the right moment. And I think that if, if you know any of them hadn't worked out, then I probably wouldn't have had any of the success that I've had so far. So, you know, it's interesting that I, uh, you know, a couple of, of reviews, you know, some positive and some negative, have said that the book is a sort of up by your bootstraps um, story. And when I think back at my life, I, I almost think that it, it couldn't be further from the opposite. It's not so much that I pulled my own bootstraps up. It's that there were 20 different people who made sacrifices for me to ensure that I had anything like the success that I've had right now. So it's, you know, how did I get here? I think a lot of luck and a lot of really good people in my life. Well, the one thing you do talk about in the book is sort of, um, and I don't know how to put this actually, is, is people's own responsibility, I guess. It's not just the external forces that are an issue here, that people have to take some of their own responsibility. Yeah, no, it's, it, that's definitely true. And the way that I frame it is that when we talk about these problems of inequality and upward mobility, we sort of get in our ideological camps and people on the left maybe say it's all about the economics, it's all about the structural forces, underfunded public schools and so forth, and people on the right say that it's all personal responsibility. And I think both of them have an element of truth. There's definitely an important role for personal responsibility. There's definitely an important role for the regional economics of these places. But, you know, personal responsibility, I think, is not just taking responsibility for yourself. In some ways, it's taking responsibility for your community, for your children, for people who maybe aren't related to you but need a helping hand in one way or the other. And that's, I think, really the story of my life, that all of these things that exist between the individual, meaning myself, and the government, Mamaw and Papaw, aunts and uncles, teachers, the military, those things all worked out for me in a very successful way. And I think that if we want to help more kids like me, we have to think about how do we, how do we make those things work for other kids, too, because right now they're clearly not working as well as they could be. Is there anything else you want to add on the topic of, of what you'd like to do to help in the education field or, or what you really think is, is critical as we move forward? I think that we have to create more pathways to the middle class for kids who grow up like I did uh, because not everyone wants to go to a four-year college and they shouldn't be made to. Not everyone 
wants to go work in a service sector job making seven or eight dollars an hour, there should be opportunities to do more than those two things. And I think that is one of these areas where public policy really could help. Do you see yourself as an optimist or a pessimist at this time? I mean, how would you describe uh, looking at the state of the country and, and where things are right now? Well, I'm a short-term pessimist and a medium and long-term optimist. I do think that um, we're just waking up to the scale of some of these challenges, and I suspect that over the next couple of years, the trend lines are going to continue to move in the, in the wrong direction, especially with regards to this opioid crisis. Um, but you know, the the one of the most important lessons of my life, I think, is that people tend to do the best thing for themselves and for their communities when they're given a chance. And I just don't think that we're going to continue to go down this path. I I, I just I really believe that now that we've recognized that there's a significant problem, smart people, good-hearted people are gonna to come together and figure out how to deal with it. So I'm an optimist in human agency and the power of human beings to change lives, so that's my answer.